This episode of With Love and Justice for All is brought to you by Bliss Books and Wine. Bliss Books and Wine is an independent black-owned bookstore for wine enthusiasts and book lovers. Listed as one of the black-owned bookstores in America that amplify the best in literature by OprahDaily.com, Bliss Books and Wine is your go-to for all your favorite titles, including ebooks and audiobooks. And when we buy from black-owned businesses, we are helping to create a world of racial equity. When ordering online, use the code 846BOOK for a 10% discount. That's 846-B-O-O-K for a 10% discount at blissbooksandwine.com. Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to episode 91 of With Love and Justice for All, where we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, dismantling oppression, fostering liberation, with a unique look at the special challenges that arise as spiritual seekers. I'm Reverend Ogan here with my partner in crime, consciousness, and co-creation, Reverend Kelly. How are you doing, Reverend Kelly? I'm pretty good. Excellent. Just sort of mellowish. Mellowish. I'm a mellow. Yes, but I'm sure today's conversation will get me <clears throat> moving out of the mellowish place. Yes, intriguing conversation. As um, as yeah. if you've been listening to our last couple episodes, um, we have taken uh, decided to make the month of May because it is International Masturbation Month to center our conversations around sex and sexuality and sexual practice and all the things. And sort of tangentially connected to this, I thought it'd be um, good to have a conversation around uh, taking a deeper look at, again, dismantling some of those norms around um, relationships um, and and dating and all the things. Um, as you know, uh, Reverend Kelly and I have mentioned and had conversations around polyamory and ethical non-monogamy before, um, of which I am a, a practitioner participant, a practicer. Um, it's how I do relationships anyways. Um, um, so what um, we have some guests today, I'll get to them in a minute. But before I do that, I always want to start off by thanking our listeners from around the US and A, from around the world, listeners in over 24 countries like India and Singapore and UK, Portugal, and um, thank you very much, all of you, for continuing to support our show and spreading the word. Um, we grow in listeners every day and um, add in some more countries to the list. Thanks for helping us get the message out. Uh, before we get into uh, our conversation today, which I'm sh- I know will move me out of my mellowishness, uh, you can always join the conversation with us, we are we live stream to Facebook, so you can watch live now or later on. But um, on Facebook or on Instagram, you can always message us, and it's at Get Our Holy On is our handle. And you can call and leave a message. It's 413-438-4659. Or if you want to use the letters and be really cool about it, it's 413 Get Holy. Which I think keep in mind the get holy piece because today's conversation uh, is absolutely part of that. How do we live holy? You know, it doesn't mean religious necessarily, but in dismantling the, um, you know, 
white cultural supremacy norms around and patriarchy around our relationships and how we do how we build them how we live in them how coming out of the dark so this is part of getting our holy on and before Ogan introduces our guest to you just want to let you know that our affinity groups um, are the first and the third Wednesday of every month. The first Wednesday of the month is uh, the communal group. And then the third Wednesday, <clears throat> the third Wednesday of the month is the affinity groups where there's a group that Ogan facilitates for bodies of culture. And then there's a, a group that I facilitate for white bodies. And that is, uh, that's on the third Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern till uh, for 90 minutes go to our uh, website, projectsanctus.com, and you can easily find them there under events and you need to register. If you wanna join either one communal or the uh, affinity groups, then please register. And the this is Tuesday, May 16th, we're recording this, but so tomorrow, the 17th is, will tomorrow evening will be the affinity groups, the two different ones. As always, we ask for support. Uh, with donations. Um, and we're not, you know, we shamelessly ask, because uh, that's how we keep our work going. We are the interns, we are the CEOs and the CFO, we are the middle management, we are everything. And if you want to support us in keeping the work going, please uh, donate. And any amount is always welcome. And you can go to projectsanctus.com to the donate um, and do that for us that you can sign up as a regular monthly donating or just one time, but we always invite people to support. You wanna know what to do? This is one way to do something is to support us to keep doing what we do. And yes, we're grateful for all kinds of donations, but I prefer yeah. the month. I prefer the monthly recurring ones. Absolutely. Uh, you know, set it and forget it is what I like to yeah. say. Well, it's a that. commitment. You're saying, yes, I'm committed exactly. to this. Exactly. Uh, speaking of people committed to making a difference, I'm thrilled to welcome two lawyers to our show. No, we're not in trouble. We didn't do anything. Um, but uh, I'm thrilled to welcome Heron Greensmith and Andy Eisenson. Did I say your last name correctly? Um, Eisenson to the show and they're lawyers from the polyamory, ah, I can talk, polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. Uh, unmute, unmute yourself, guys, and say hi. Hi, this is Heron. Awesome. Hey, it's Andy. Thank you. Welcome to the show. So the the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, people just call it plaque. I mean, it's a yeah, okay. Usually as a person who struggled with gingivitis and, and dental surgeries, plaque sort of is a triggering word for me. But I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna roll with it. I'm gonna roll with it. Not not the it same. It always plaque. makes me think of uh, of the duck from the Aflac commercial. Yeah, oh. exactly right. Exactly. Yep. Anyway, think uh, of it as a, a commemorative plaque, a commemorative plaque. Oh, yep. Thank you. Thank you. It's had to retool it. I appreciate that. It's good to have lawyers sometimes. Uh, plaque <laughs> is a multidisciplinary coalition of academic and legal professionals seeking to advance the civil and human rights of polyamorous individuals, communities and families through legislative advocacy, public policy and public education. So how I first came across you guys and wanting on the shows because of a headline I read recently um, in the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, this is outside of Boston, and I used to live in that area, um, the city council, for the first time in the nation, actually passed um, or approved legal protections for polyamorous 
families um, is the first of their kind, and you guys were instrumental um, in in making that happen. So I thought it would be it'd be worth to have a conversation around um, not specifically what polyamory is itself. I mean that I think that will come up in the course of the conversation, but really around. Um, why why it's important to have these laws on the books, the sort of dangers and discriminations polyamory, polyamorous families face, the fact that they are polyamorous families, and um and you know the 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 whole point of our show is about um creating creating places of justice, safety and justice for everyone. And there really isn't that for a lot of polyamorous individuals and families, which is sort of why many of them exist um, still in the closet around um, how they do relationships. Um, but before we get to that, um, tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, how you got into this specific line of work, um, and tell us a little bit about, about plaque. Aaron, you can go first. Go, uh, like, don't all rush at once. I'll go first. Well, that's what happens when you ask a question of multiple people. I know, I know. That, very that's nice, on, loving, polite people. That's on and me. Then, yeah. I, that, that's on me. <laughs> Sorry, my apologies. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, I'm happy to go first. My name is Harrod Greensmith. I'm the Senior Research Analyst for LGBTQI Justice at Political Research Associates, where I research the anti-LGBT right wing. So for my day job, I do a lot of social media monitoring and horrible email reading and following of different people and networks and communities and rhetoric online. And then I use that information to help our sibling organizations and our partner organizations to better do their job to, for example, advocate for gender affirming care for trans youth or to advocate for um, stable housing and housing non-discrimination protections for trans people, for example. Essentially anything to bring about a feminist, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. Um, that's my day job. And as part of that day job, um, I started monitoring um, anti-polyamory rhetoric and uh, that work combined with my personal interest in supporting polyamorous folks, I identify as a polyamorous person. Um, I have uh, a nesting partner and co-parent who we have a kiddo together. Um, and then I have a couple other partners, sweeties. Um, and I don't actually remember how everything happened, but Somerville also became the first municipality in the nation to pass relationship recognition for families with more than two parents. Or yeah, more that was back partners. in uh, that was back in 2020, I believe. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So members of what would become Plaque participated in the drafting of that ordinance, and then many of us had been circling one another, doing work together, and we all just came together in a very natural convergence. Um, that included folks doing social science research and folks providing, like Andy, who provide legal services to polyamorous people, and then people like me who research um, anti-polyamorous um, activity. So that's kind of a very short hand tale of how I got to the work. 
Um, I'm happy to talk about plaque a little bit more, but I don't know if Andy wants to do their I want to, I want to ask a question first. I ask need a sidebar. I need a sidebar. <laughs> and so, cause this is probably going to happen throughout because uh, a lot of our listeners may not know the terms that are used. They oh, yeah. might not even understand polyamory. Um, but you used, you, when you were talking about relationships, you, one of the terms you used was nesting partner. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could just, ex, you know, a sentence, a couple sentences to Absolutely. our listeners that don't know what that is. Thank you. There's there's a bunch of different ways to describe relationships. Um, well, monogamous relationships or non-monogamous relationships. Um, and one way you can describe a relationship with someone whom you build your house with, whom you entangle your financials with, is a nesting partner, the person whom you build a nest with. And you can have one nesting partner or two or three or as many nesting partners fit in your house. Um, I have one and we share parenting together of our 12-year-old. My sidebar was going to be uh, you perusing these headlines all day. How do you keep your sanity? But we can talk about that later. We don't. We, yeah, no. short answer is I don't. So maybe okay. let's skip that one. Okay. <laughs> to know. Uh, Andy, uh, step up to the mic. Let us know who you are. The funniest anti-polyamory rhetoric I have seen is I get called a cuck sometimes, which I oh. think is so funny because it, you know, it means you 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 are someone who tolerates your partner being in relationships with other people and like yes that's what we're doing here yes uh um by the way by the way we are we are not a show that requires you to be uh, genteel in any way in which you speak so you can you can be as straightforward and graphic in nature huh? <laughs> yeah you as, don't as need you to yeah. No need to filter. We, we no, have yeah. we have an adult audience because I was like, uh, my understanding of cuck has a sort of much more like uh, sexual connotation, as in one who gets turned on by watching their partner have sex with someone else. Uh, so, but yes, I I can see I can see why those who seek to be insulting or derogatory would go there. But for those who enjoy that, it's really a compliment. <laughs> It's, it's really, it's just, it's funny because they're like, they're trying to insult me based on their value system, which I think yes. is ridiculous. So yes. they're like, you're not living up to my model of masculinity. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh. So, um, I am the, oh my God, I have so many jobs. I'm the senior legal director at the Chosen Family Law Center. Um a lot of what that means is direct services, um, which means uh, people come to me uh, for legal services and I, I serve as their lawyer. So I do a lot of, um, I'll draft uh, family agreements for people. Um, I'll help them <clears throat> uh, navigate entangling their finances or disentangling their finances, or you know, I do a lot of name and gender marker changes uh, as well, just because I like it. and. It, there's not a lot of opportunities as a lawyer for you to have people be happy to see you. Um, so it's nice to get a little, a little, a little hint of that sometimes. Um, and we do some uh, legislative policy work, um, advocacy around that teaching. I like to do a lot of um, teaching other lawyers how to not be jerks to their clients when their clients are polyamorous or their clients are trans or their clients are kinky or in one way or another, um, you know, have some setup in their life that means 
they don't feel like they can necessarily walk into the office of any old lawyer um, and get treated like a person. Mm. I just want to slightly increase the likelihood that any lawyer you happen to walk into the office of is going to treat you like a person. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's all about scalability, you know, like we can, we can, we can do, we can work until we're blue in the face on what's directly in front of us, but that's always going to be a really narrow window. And so how do we widen that scope, right? How do we maximize that impact? Um, I also, right now I'm working as a, uh, instructor at the LGBTQI advocacy clinic at Harvard Law School. Um, so I'm uh, supervising some students and doing projects, including um, working on the plaque, the polyamory legal advocacy coalition stuff. Um, and uh, and so I spend a lot of time talking to people about, like, yes, polyamory is a real thing. Yes, uh, the bias against polyamory is a real thing. Um, and the extent to which uh, you are or are not seeing, you know, hate crimes against polyamorous people be a problem is not actually the measure of what it means to live in a world that discriminates against polyamorous people in the same way as, you know, when you look at any other axis of discrimination, the overt animus based, uh, you know, I'm hitting you with a pipe because I hate the thing that you are is like the tip of the iceberg of what all discrimination is. And underneath it spreads this giant root system of the ways in which the world is not set up for people like us. Um, and that those are the things that we actually need to address um, more than uh, whether or not there are individuals um, who are expressing overt uh, animus and hatred. Not that that's not a problem, um, but that's not something that can be dealt with on the legislative uh, uh, front, if you know what I mean. So when we're talking about legislative policy, we're talking about um, what in legal terms we call discriminatory impact. Um, so for example, um, you know, I, <clears throat> Aaron just uh, defined nesting partners for you. I've got three of those. Um, and we would, uh, in 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 uh, in how normally you would think about a relationship, it would make sense for us to be able to share health insurance, right? These are the people who we take care of each other if we get sick. We are financially entangled. We are in a household together, um, but it's not possible for us to share health insurance. And that's not because someone came to us and said, "Hey, because you're polyamorous, you don't qualify for health insurance." In that overt animus-based way, right? Rather, it's because the system is set up to assume that all families have two adults um, and no more than two, and so it's not set up to accommodate a family that looks like mine, not because of overt animus, but because that's the discriminatory impact does that distinction make sense it, it does make sense so does this mean then that you let's say um you, you are in a polyamorous household you have two three four partners or whatever that you will therefore be denied uh services um because so so sometimes you know along those lines be, because there isn't that intentional animus you know you might find yourself in a position where someone will say oh 
we never had that sort of situation or request. Sure, let's see what we can do about it. Or is it a case of like, uh, no, we aren't set up for that. Therefore, you don't get how uh, what what is how does it go more often than not? Normally, it's it's the latter. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, if uh, if one of us is in the hospital, we have to pick which of their partners is going to be able to come and visit them because you can only have one partner mm. as far as the hospital is concerned. Mm. Um, and when you try to say, when you try to say we're, we are all the partners, right? We are all family. You know, they, the, the response of the, of the gatekeepers is not, Oh, how interesting. Tell us about your innovative family situation. It's go fuck yourself. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and, if we were all white and cisgender, would it be different? Maybe. Um, you mm, know, yeah. it, it, it's not like any of these situations are are um, happening in a vacuum, uh, totally separated from the other power dynamics that inform all of the relationships in our lives. Um, so, uh, you know, so I can't, I can't tell you as a as a matter of certainty that there is no situation in which a polyamorous family could go to some kind of healthcare provider um, seeking accommodation and uh, and be um, and be uh, accommodated. Um, right. But I can tell you, it it did not work for us. Gotcha. So, so what is what is the specific legislation that was um, recently passed in Somerville? Let's talk about that. And um, I always ask multi-part questions. I'm, I'm working on doing better around that. So I'm going to stop there. Let's talk, let's talk about a specific legislation. I can talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, this is Heron again. I know we have similar voices. Um not to me at all and maybe maybe because i'm seeing you but but in my ears you you two do not sound like at all yeah what he said we are of we are of a kind of of lgbtq person that sometimes gets mistaken for one another whether it is in person or um via podcast okay um but briefly as i said in 2020 Somerville was the first municipality to pass relationship recognition for people with more than one other partner. And then in quick succession, Cambridge, Massachusetts and Arlington, Massachusetts also passed relationship recognition, meaning there are three municipalities in the entire country where you can go and register right now a domestic partnership um, if you have multiple partners. And then this year, Somerville became the first municipality, as you said, Ogan, to pass non-discrimination protections for those people who accessed um, the relationship recognition. And honestly, for people who didn't access relationship recognition in Somerville, um, you uh, are protected from specific types of discrimination. I believe it's housing. And then is there one other? Is there a other city benefits, Andy? It's um, <clears throat> it's actually housing is coming soon in the... Oh, good in the next cycle um the what's already passed is employment um city benefits and policing what what that was intended intended to do and you know cops will be cops right but yeah the the hope was that um it would uh it would apply to cps um 
that it wouldn't that basically you wouldn't be able to um you wouldn't have a sort of uh inherently adversarial finding in a cps in investigation simply because of polyamory within a household which, CPS which is, is protective uh, services thank you this is i don't know the correct way to answer were there situations that arose that demanded this legislation be passed or this more was this more of a like a proactive hey we realize that um that this specific group of people of which we are part don't have these rights we should do something about that because usually you know us human beings bless our hearts we tend to be more reactive than proactive so i was just wondering if if this was this was a sort of a reactive response to discriminations that were happening honestly andy i'll let you join but this was proactive we have a couple of counselors on the somerville city council who also identify as polyamorous people and mm -hmm. this just happened to be a really good time and place and they had access to attorneys who were excited about drafting the ordinance and everything came together which is not to say that there aren't or weren't instances of discrimination against polyamorous families in Somerville, in Cambridge, in Arlington, and across the country. You know, I, I will bring in some stats here. We haven't really talked about it, but around one in five, more than one in five people in the United States report having engaged in some type of consensually non-monogamous relationship at some point in their life. And this includes everything from casually dating more than one person to having multiple nesting partners. Um, I like how I'm locating you, Andy, on one side of the scale here. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm as weird as it gets, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No one, you could not possibly be weirder. That's right. Um, so, and we I know strive from, every day. And that is what makes you, you. Mm. We know from, from, from data from um, studies done by, in fact, by some of the folks who are in the Polyamorous Legal Advocacy Coalition. And we um, encourage you to visit polyamorylegal.org to learn more about PLAC and our coalition and how to get involved. But we know from their research that non-traditional families have been discriminated against for centuries in the United States and, and non-traditionalness has been used to persecute and prosecute black and brown families who rely on kinship networks, um, which look a lot like families with more than two partners and more than two parents, um, uh, that polyamory and other um, non-traditional family relationships have been used as excuses to remove children. Um, we know that family courts have inherently and deeply misunderstood families with more than two partners and more than two parents. And Andy can speak more about their experiences in courts with polyamorous people. In 2020, this study showed that one half of LGBT people um, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> most of my work is LGBT, so I just like completely just jumped to that when I'm describing somebody, but one half of folks who've engaged in consensual non-monogamy, um, even though the majority of us conceal our consensual non-monogamy, one half of us have experienced discrimination, overt discrimination because of our consensual non-monogamy. I was going to say, Andy, she was just saying you could maybe speak to some instances or examples or, or yeah, however, however you so want to. 
pick it up. I yeah, use a, they, by a the way. A couple of thoughts. I'm sorry? I use they, by the way. Oh, my apologies. They. No worries. As, as Heron said, um, you know, there's, there's a, a little bit of sort of getting out ahead of it that we were trying to do here um, in part because, um, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I got to see Carol Queen give a talk. You know her? I do um, not. She's a real, she's a real elder in the sex positive community and just, she's been a luminary for, for so long. Um, and I saw her give a talk. She's, well, I'm not a tall person, but she, she's like maybe five foot even, could barely see over the, the podium. And she came up there and she slapped her hand on the podium and she said, you know what's wrong with this damn world? A historicity. <laughs> and I really, I took that to heart. Um, because I think I think that ahistoricity is a huge problem um, because everybody, when they jump into a movement or they jump into a project, they're like, okay, I'm here, now we can start, you know? Um, and it, it takes, I think, a lot of maturity to acknowledge that the work has been being done before you got there and to learn from that instead of discarding it because how could it be any good because you weren't there yet, right? Um, and so it's very important to us to be connected with the history of our movement, our elders and our ancestors in the struggle and to consider ourselves as links in a chain. And so in thinking about, you know, the struggle for polyamorous liberation um, and what role relationship recognition plays in that. It's always on our minds to be looking back at the struggle for gay liberation and the role that relationship recognition has played historically and now in that. And one of the things that we saw early in the same-sex marriage fight, when marriage was starting to be available, um, was that um, when you had relationship recognition that did not, that dramatically preceded anti-discrimination protections, um, people wouldn't take advantage of the relationship recognition because you could get married on a Sunday and then fired for being married on a Monday. Okay. And we wanted to learn from that. Um, you know, it's it's been a few years, um, but we we wanted to um, head off replicating that mistake, and so um, we wanted to make really sure that every step towards relationship recognition that we take, we're also taking the equivalent step towards anti discrimination and other materialist practices that don't just take relationship recognition for the sake of recognition, but actually think about it contextualized in a capitalist society that has all of these other power differentials in it. Um, and how do we need to accommodate, for, you know, account for all of those when we're trying to use relationship recognition for what we want it to be used for, which is to materially impact the conditions of our communities. You know, you, you said something, Andy, that really 
struck me and it was this one little thing like you just said a whole lot but there was this one thing that that I really um latched on to because I I last week uh so last week on our podcast we we talked about as Ogan said May is International Masturbation Month and so our first week in May we just talked about healing like I mean touch like physically being able to touch yourself not necessarily in a sexual manner but but like it's healing. Like we need to know how to touch our own bodies. And then last week we talked about masturbation, but it's always in this context of with love, justice, and liberation, right. And dismantling these systems of oppression. And so what I, and then that was Tuesday. And then Thursday I found myself, well, every Thursday I have a a meeting with a, a group of colleagues and it's always, uh, so what's on people's mind? And I was just waiting to see if anybody popped up and a couple things popped up. And so then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to tell them about our podcast on masturbation um, and just see where it goes. Because this is a room full of, you know, spiritual leaders who are like, who get, some of them get very distressed if you just say fuck. And, um, and then, which of course makes me want to say it a lot just to, you know, take take the energy out of it. And cause that's why I'm here, but I, but what, so what you said that really caught my attention was, you know, when someone discovers something like recognizing what was going on before now that, you know, something exists, right. And, and come, come into it with an enormous amount of humility that you don't really know much of anything. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, just, you don't know, like you're just learning. And that's what this meeting was like, like to watch all these people be not even recognize that, you know, sex and sexuality, you know, relationships, polyamory, masturbation, all has been, um, you know, how we think about it or value it or don't value it, or, um, you know, this is shameful and bad is a result of centuries of, of oppression. And it's, manifesting and demonstrating and you know this virus that mutates and oh let's now let's you know and it becomes more and more public of who we're discriminating and who we're oppressing even though it's been going on but now all of a sudden I'm sitting in this meeting with a group of spiritual leaders that are like oh my god I had no idea you know and it's and to watch the wake up and to watch the um you know, and I'm kind of like, okay, now, you know, you need to go learn, not do a book study, like, you know, something, but actually find out who, who's been doing this work, like whose shoulders are you standing on and, and taking that work and giving it a voice and, you know, keep moving. Um, So I think this is a a little bit of a tangent, but there's a, um, there's this book called um, uh, Epistemologies of the South, that's about mm-hmm. um, justice against epistemicide, right? Different ways of knowing and receiving knowledge, um, and the the mm. way in which the the one that we get taught in sort of American schools, which is this book or this teacher, right, has the knowledge and imparts it to you, and then you have right. it. Um, that's like one type of epistemology, but right. it's the type that. As that got attached to colonialism. And so it's been systematically wiping out other epistemologies. But like part yeah. of our task here is to reconnect with these subverted epistemologies and use mm. other types of knowing, other types of learning. Like when we gain knowledge, not just 
from it being transferred through hierarchy, but through connection, through yeah. the body, through our ancestors, like what knowledge is embedded in the body that was given to you by the people that came before you. Like, right. it's not just about knowledge being a tool of the creation and reinforcing of hierarchy, right. um, you know, and I know that there's a lot of really cool, um, uh, uh, like womanist spirituality work on this in the mm -hmm. field of counter remembering and re-remembering. Yep. Um, my dear friend Sophia um, does does some really cool writing on this, um, but uh, but I I do think like what we're talking about here in all of these different realms is that we live in a world that tries to make hierarchy true about mm. everything. In order right. for hierarchy to be true about anything, it has to position itself as universally true. And it has to be true that there's only so much of everything to go around and that some people can have it and some people can't. And you have to make sure that you stay in the set of people who get it because otherwise you're in the set of people who don't. Um, and all of that, you know, it's, it's given to us as true about land and true about money and true right. about all types of resources. And in order to be true about that stuff, of course, it has to be true about love, right? Yeah. And if we, if we just take that and, and look at it for one second, like the idea of love as a diminishing resource, right? Love as something that you can give away and then you have less of it. Like that's goofy. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Like if you, you. Light a, <laughs> if you light a candle with another candle, your first candle is not less on fire, but we have to be, we have to tolerate this scarcity economy of everything in order to tolerate it about anything. Because once you start to mm. question scarcity about something like love, then you it doesn't take a lot of steps from there to start questioning capitalism, right? right? And it, once you're questioning capitalism, a lot of other questions open up about like why our society is set up the way it is and why our economy needs to run on the labor of prisoners in the way that it does. And if too Preach. many people start doing that, then, then, uh, then we really have a revolution on our hands. Then we really have a revolution on our hands. And, Nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, the scarcity, the separation, and supremacy. It's this, yeah, it just was, it was fascinating to be with this group of people and um, the opening, you know, just an opening and like, oh my gosh, there's more to this, to this oppressive system. Uh, I think it's also true that a lot of the ways in which our, our culture is set up are, are designed to separate us from our bodies. Absolutely. And to make us believe that we are like that this is you, right? You're the you're the guy piloting the mech. You live right here and everything else is just the vehicle. For um, for our audio listeners, he's pointing to his head. Remember this? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's 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 hard. <laughs> Most people will listen to the audio, but but yes, we're the intellect, the head. Yes. That been... we we live right behind the eyes and everything exactly. else is just the the vehicle for that consciousness. Which is which is the complete opposite of of what of 
what the vast majority of humanity over the eons has established mm-hmm. as as the norm, which was which is body centricity, uh, body body positivity. Um, indigenous cultures have always been about about that, and and instead of establishing patriarchy, uh, um, having a culture of matriarchy in, instead, and um, and we have to. Uh, to your to your point, yes, um, part of I think the pushback against anything that does not fit into that hierarchy normativeness or binary normativeness challenges challenges what is already established and um, and I, and unfortunately, folks believe there's too much that they will lose out that zero sum game. They will lose if others who um, are have been pushed to the outside gain some gain some traction um that's right but you're right it is the difference between scarcity mentality and abundance mentality heron it looks like you wanted to jump in and say something uh a little while ago and now go for it oh (laughs) i just i i recently reread left hand of darkness and i was been thinking about how this conversation mirrors kind of the conversations that happen throughout the book. I was just looking at the part where um, I've been avoiding saying his name out loud um, because is it Genry or Genry? Do we have a feeling about this? Have we recently read Left Hand of Darkness? I've always said Genry, but okay, great. I, I've, I, I say Genry. I'm too. not suggesting that I'm right. All right, That's let's just go with Genry though, because I'll go with two. For those of who are unfamiliar with Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. Genry is a envoy from a vast galactic um, union who visits a planet with the mission of helping the planet join the union if it should wish. Um, And he is sent alone because people are not afraid of a single person the way they are afraid of a bunch of people or, you know, a bunch of spaceships appearing out of space um, at once. And I agree with that. But he goes and travels to the um, the foretellers, and the foretellers are people who can uh, answer questions that are answerable, and they distinguish between answerable and unanswerable very specifically. But someone greets Gen- uh, Genry as he enters this village, and the person on the path at Other Horde looked with mild curiosity at my nose and answered, And perhaps you'll want to speak with the weaver. He's down in the glade now, unless he went out with the wood sledge. Or would you rather talk first to one of the celibates? And Genry says, I'm not sure. I'm exceedingly ignorant. And the young man laughs and bows and says, I am honored. I've lived here three years and haven't yet acquired enough ignorance to be worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. He was highly amused, but his manner was gentle. And I managed to recollect enough scraps of the Hondura lore to realize I had been boasting very much as if I'd come up to him and said, I am exceedingly handsome. And I love the idea that ignorance is something that you strive towards um, instead of something that you run away from. Yeah. Um, I'm often fond of saying um, the more, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know, Um, which is, which might be daunting for some folks, but I find that again, very, very humbling. Um, and um it really it really puts me in my place of going like you know if if there's if there's any authority that i might claim it's from my 
personal learnings and journeys. And my personal learning journey is is a mere like you know grain of sand in the in the expanse of of what is what is out there to to know and and what other people have experienced. And more importantly, along those hierarchy lines, my journey, my belief, my learnings are not are not the authority. Um, and and the final say. And I think this is where we run into trouble where where folks. Um, seek to impart their position as the authority, if for no other reason than it's what's been accepted as quote unquote the norm for so long. But then again, when you look at it historically, it hasn't been for so long um, as 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 well. And and can we be open to to a coexisting of them? Um, but but I I love I love Wendy said Andy about. And I and I and I hate to use the term non-traditional because I'm realizing more and more I I'm I I define things by what they're not, and and what they're not tends to be along the the normative end of things. Go ahead. I I have I I made a note that I wanted to 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 touch on the that term non-traditional because that's listen. I'm sorry I said it. It was in our it was in our 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 plaque notes, and so I said it. It's it's not like you. We all we all find ourselves frequently defaulting to that language. Like yes. I do it yes. too, but I think it's really it's really worth thinking about. Like yeah. the idea that the, the like when we say a traditional family, what yeah. do we mean? Right? We exactly. mean two parents. They're different genders. They're married to each other. And they had sex them, with each other. They had sex with each other on purpose. And they only <laughs> produced one or more children in that method. Neither of them is significantly entangled with any other person. And they live in a house that they own with those two parents and their children and no other people. Right. Yes. That's the traditional family. And a nice green lawn. <laughs> and a nice and a nice green lawn that has no stray plants in it at all. There'll now, be plastic on the furniture. <laughs> Keep it nice. Don't break and clean. my heart. <laughs> <laughs> In here's the, the thing: house that we that's own. not by any definition of the word traditional. That's and, not and, traditional, and, and that's not, not that and not even the majority. So few, less, many people live that reality. <laughs> it's less than a hundred years old, and mm. less than half of American families actually look like that. Yes. So whence this idea that it's traditional, right? Whence this, this pervasive propaganda that that's the traditional way to have a family, that that's the correct way to have a family because it is traditional, right? That the way that we have always done it is the way that we should always do it. Leaving aside whether that's actually the case, it's not actually true that that's the way we've always done it. That's the way that a little under half of American families have done it since like the post-war period. That's it. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, I think, worth questioning, like who benefits from us believing that all families that don't look like that are deviant, wrong, and undeserving of benefits, right? Who, who actually benefits from us tolerating a society that only provides protections to that shape of family because i don't think it's us and that's really what it is it's not that 
families are deprioritized. It's that there is no access. Three people who are who have relationships with each other cannot get a, a house loan together. It's just they cannot support one another's um, health insurance. You know, these are these are material obstructions to liberation which and is, to supporting so, one another. Which is weird because you'd think you'd think the more people on the loan, the better chance you have to get the loan paid back. I mean, and the more people on the health insurance plan, the more premiums the health insurance right? company gets. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly, exactly. And and there's what's point? Sorry, go ahead, Heron. Continue. I was just saying, there's I, a point at which judicial efficiency. There's, so there's a principle of judicial efficiency um, for for attorneys. It says, you know, like you write legislation and you decide laws the most efficient way possible, because otherwise you'd have all these baroque, you know, nonsensical garden paths of laws. But judicial efficiency falls apart when your judicial efficiency is stopping what is truly efficient. So you're not, you know, it's no longer judicial efficiency. Mm. It's just white supremacy in action. Um, right. But right. It, it belies itself. So I, I'm always talking to attorneys about judicial efficiency and about how supporting folks where they are with the tools that they need will always be most efficient for us. When people have what they need to provide for themselves, they do not need to rely on the state providing for what they need. Um, so efficiency will always be best served by providing folks with the materials that they need on the ground to thrive. Well, and I think that the, you know, on the chosen family law center, where on, on the page under the mission statement, where you describe a chosen family, when you read that, and it's not very long at all, it's, it basically, for me, as I'm listening to what you just said, Heron, is, oh, that's efficient, you know, when you when you look at the description and, um, you know, it's not necessarily a biological relationship, um, but it's a connection. It says a connection with dedication um, and then looking at historically how, um, you know, many BIPOC families have chosen aunties and uncles with no blood relationship, but make the decision to stay connected and the commitment to the children. And and there's are several other things it says. Um, and as I read it, it's also a commitment to stability um, and, you know, not just, uh, oh, I think for a few months, you know, it, it's not like having, um, you know, it's not like you're subletting a room, you know, that, that the way you describe the chosen family is really, I didn't know this till you, I, I just love the way that you said that about judicial efficiency and the chosen family is highly efficient <laughs> for yes. everybody to get their needs met, for everybody to have, you know, the the yes. the sense of well-being and safety and belonging and dignity and liberation. Like yes, this first um the first episode of Queer Eye of the newest new season, I think this is season five, maybe that came out just last night, is a small frat house at the University of New Orleans. And the the Fab Five redo the frat house and they help take these young men into the next step of their manhood. But the first couple minutes of the episode are taken with the Fab Five, who are a set of five queer people um, who all have their chosen families and have talked throughout the seasons about their chosen families um, and their families of origin, realizing that these young men have built 
a chosen family. They have built an efficient unit where they can share resources with one another. They can, um, they have housing that is all cheaper than if they each had housing by themselves. They share their food. They make food together. And the Fab Five are just taken how this chosen family can seemingly spring out of nowhere. But what I wanted to say to the Fab Five is that, you know, Bobby even says, like, I thought chosen family was queer, was like, you know, a stronghold of queer people. And I, I felt so tender towards that misapprehension. But in reality, as Andy was saying, less than half of families households in the United States are a married mother and father with their biological children. And the rest of us are just making do with what we've got. We just have who's in our house, who who we love and who we need to feed and who we need to house. Um, and we're just trying to make it as it goes. And and it would be the most efficient, as you said, to deliver services to the house, to the household and to the, and, you know, if you want to go further than that, to the networks, to the people who can most efficiently distribute food and most efficiently make sure everyone has a bed and make sure everyone has access to healthcare. I think that yes. gets lost on, on, on the majority of people because they hear you know, the judgment is you hear polyamory and everybody just goes right to sex, um, you know, or sh the shame of it or how it's because it's different, it's wrong. And, you know, it, this part of this conversation really has has taken me out of that mellowishness that I said at the very <laughs> beginning, because I I am very much, you know, the collective well-being is 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 my life's work. Um, in whatever form that takes. And so this, the efficient, thank you for the efficiency of that. Yeah. And I, and I yeah. wanted to, I just want to add really quick that the laws that we're passing, these are not laws for polyamorous people. These are not laws for consensually non-monogamous people. These are laws for families who are like we are just making a do. These are, these are laws that allow adults to um, create meaningful relationships with the people in their lives that they need to distribute their their resources to. So we don't say, you know, that only polyamorous people can access this non-discrimination protection. No, it's any families um, right. who have more than two parents or more than two partners, which, and then we actually, I think the, fact, the Somerville, it's broader, it's, it's broader than, than that. that. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. simply forbidding discrimination on the basis of family and relationship structure yes, that's right um, mm. you know and the family and relationship structure that is commonly discriminated against is uh the kind where there are more than two adults who are you know intimately entangled with one another but that's far from the only one yeah we have single parents right. we have kinship relationships we have sibling relationships we have parent-child relationships when they're adults and the adult is a is a uh, and the adult child is a caregiver to the to the parent, and they can't necessarily like I could not put my mother on my health insurance right now, for example. We have a definition of domestic partner that would prevent me from putting her as my plus one. So my apologies if it sounded like I was, uh, you know, um, I wasn't really just referring to polyamory as the um, in this context of of collective well being. So uh, it just. Probably. But you know what else is really interesting, though, is that it's true that there's there's this sexualization of the concept of polyamory, right? Like it's 
you're you're absolutely right that in in tons of the media about it like a lot of the time when people are interviewing us about our work which you know it it's not like obviously we are sexy but like legislative policy is not inherently sexy stuff um and yet here we are you know explicitly the reason that you brought us on to talk about this today is that it is masturbation month mm -hmm. right that's you know and i'm glad we're here i'm glad we're having this conversation um but the fact that this this uh non-discrimination ordinance falls under the umbrella of masturbation says something about how polyamory is categorized culturally yep right that it is inherently sexualized inherently um you know this outrageous and and exotic thing um, um you know and all sorry no go ahead uh i was i i often say to folk who bring that argument to me um, i said actually i'm object since i became polyamorous i've been objectively having less sex than i have when I was like a serial monogamist, uh, you know, and 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 part of that is because is because uh, being polyamorous has forced me to examine all of those internalized patriarchal tropes and expectations I have around relationships and sex and sexuality and how I relate to myself as a sexual being, and and as I begin to examine those, it 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 opens up the it opens up not just how i view sex but how i define sex and um and how much i realize i had centered sex not just having it but thinking about it the pressure around it um the purpose of it um things that i had never taken the time to really examine before it was just here's the here's the Here's a messaging that I inherited and internalized, and therefore I'm just going to live from it as well. And a lot of that messaging, interestingly enough, came came from the church um, as well, because there was there's you know most. I mean, I grew up um, even for lack of a better term, evangelical Christian, and there were very very defined roles and expectations around sex when you talked about what the quote unquote traditional family looks like um as well um that's that's an image that is reinforced by by christian church and religion um and it's a and the messaging around sex is reinforced by that as well and it's all very patriarchal um and that does no one any good um as we can see by the state of our world so in many in many ways um a, a I wouldn't, I don't want to use the phrase adopting this, adopting this lifestyle is not the phrase I want to use. I realize it's a phrase that people throw at me and I end up repeating it. Uh, re realizing who I really am and living into it is, 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 is causing me and others to, to really, again, upend those unconscious normative behaviors and practices that inevitably caused harm and cause people to not be happy. There's so many people who are unhappy trying to do the, you know, as we describe it, the traditional thing. Um, and then, you know, I, um, someone I recently met, um, 
that I've been on a few dates with, she said, my whole life, I've realized that trying to date and be in a relationship in this specific way, uh, the traditional monogamous way wasn't working. Um, and she says, I was just talking to my friend about maybe it's time to do something different. Um, and so we've been really having some conversations around that and where that message in that and that comes from. Um, and and folks in the religious circles don't don't take enough accountability and responsibility for their role in this messaging um, and and have defined and somehow not somehow I can you know historically you know go over how it happened we ain't got time for that but somehow that same messaging around that quote unquote traditional husband wife child nuclear setup somehow became the ideal the, the holy ideal the ideal that god has prescribed even though never existed in the bible in any way shape or form <laughs> but somehow that's that's become the the goal um as well so it's it's for me it's it's time to separate those two and in and in doing so i think it's gonna begin to unmake religion as well well, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get a crowbar in there um, as a, as a, as a pretty um, observant uh, person, uh, as a pretty, as a pretty religious person, right? One of the primary differences that I see between the practice of Judaism and the practice of Christianity um, is that Christianity has a hierarchy of people um, where your placement in that human hierarchy determines how close or how far you are from God, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are people who are closer to God than you, and they will tell you what God says, and you have to believe them and act accordingly, right? That's part of how it functions sort of on, on this plane. Um, and one of the things, one of the very important fundamental ideas of Judaism is nobody's closer to God than anyone else. God is everywhere. God is all over the place. God is inside you. God is in the air. God is in the earth. Uh, God is in your tuna fish sandwich. Like there is, there is no, there is nowhere you can go, no person you can be that makes you further from divinity than any other person. And I think the important thing about that is that if you believe that there are people who are closer to God than you, then your religion, your faith requires you to believe what another person is telling you is true. And that is a really exploitable human to human relationship um, because that person is coming to you with purported divine authority. Um, and so I would say, if you, it, the, the problem there is not the divinity, the problem is the human hierarchy. And so if you could imagine, you know, I'm speaking here to a hypothetical listener who wants to live in right relation with divinity, as they understand that word. If you could imagine, like, Okay, so maybe there's a person who's interpreting their understanding of divinity for you, but it's coming through them and they're a person and people have their own motivations and their own feelings and their own thoughts about what's going on. And like, maybe that person has different opinions than you and different values than you. And that would be okay, because 
different people can have different values. Um, but what if you didn't have to believe them about the universe and about God? What if you were exactly as close to God as them and exactly as allowed to listen to the word of God as them and exactly as allowed to interpret divinity as every other person and exactly as allowed to follow that sensation of sacred beauty when you feel it? Like, how would that change how you act in the world if you didn't listen, if you didn't have to listen to another person telling you what's true about God and you let that knowledge well up in you when you mm. feel the sunlight on your skin? So, so what's interesting is that, so Reverend Kelly and I, uh, the, the faith tradition we belong in is called unity and it, it's, it's view relationship of with the divine is much as you described it, right? The, the, the omnipresence of the divine in us, as us, through us, God is in us. We are in God. There's, there's that sense of, of oneness, not so much a, a hierarchy, but what's interesting is that in spite of that, in spite of that, there's still the strong, um, cultural gaslighting around here's what's normal and here's what's not. So for example, in, in our faith tradition, there's been um, traditional acceptance of members of the queer community. That's, you know, there's, that's not a big deal. Um, there's no, there's no strict sense of you should not be anything you are not. However, when something like um, non-monogamy and polyamory arises. Now, this is different because, um, sure, we'll we'll there's acceptance of queer folk, but as long as they can still fit into that box of you know, just the two of you be married, uh, just the two of you raising kids, like there's there's still that at you know adopting of those um, um, relationship norms. So it's a so it's in in many ways for for a lot of folks shifting their view of relationship with divinity doesn't always push them into shifting their views around what they've internalized culturally and that's and that's the niche space that that Kelly and I are are in in terms of saying like you know great you've opened your doors to certain pe to certain groups of people but you are only doing it in as much as you can be comfortable with it. You're not allowing, you're not allowing even more folks to push your comfort level and, and to, to expand you some more. So in our, in our church communities, there are people who are um, polyamorous or non-monogamous or swingers or whatever, and they're still very, um, in secret about it. Um, and, you know, and I'm not saying that, that any and everyone needs to be out for whatever reasons. Um, um, however, you know, I've had folks come to me and say, I don't feel safe in my spiritual community, uh, you know, to, to make myself known. I know I will be ostracized. I know I will be. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch, 
um, how acceptance sometimes has its has its threshold, uh, you know, in spaces. As a non as the non faithful person, I want to talk a little bit about how like the weaponization of like of of moral absolutism, right? And how moral absolutism performs yes. the same kind of functions. As Andy was saying of the you know, if you have the one person who is allowed to interpret and distribute the word of God, then you have to listen to that person when it comes to what's good and what's bad. And the same function, same thing functions, moral absolutism, you know, essentially provides that person to just follow you around in your head, right? And say what's wrong and what's right. Um, and moral relativity provides more latitude and more freedom. And then eventually, once you get down that road, you're just like, well, I've got a lot of love. And it seems pretty morally neutral to love more than one person and uh, doesn't seem to be impacting much in my ability to love the people whom I'm loving already. So being able to assess norms through moral neutrality and moral relativity has exploded my ability to love in this particular instance truly love the people who enter my life and now i'm not just talking about my people who i'm partners with but people whom i'm friends with who i say yes. i love you to and who i provide resources to again because it's efficient you know like um we had a death in the community just on mother's day and i was just texted the meal train um so that because that's efficient it's efficient for a community to provide meals for someone when when there's mourning. Um, and that has nothing to do with my my desire or my sex or having sex with with these people. It's have to do with my love um, for them and my love for our relationship with and among each other. Um, and as a as a moral relativist, it's important for me to be able to look at norms and assess their relative morality rather than having the moral absolutism handed down from on high. And I see Andy ready to put a crowbar. No, I'm just, can I, can I take your extremely Absolutely. wonderful secularism and, and make it a little more woo-woo? Yeah. As long as I'm allowed to be my secular analytical. <laughs> I love everything you are. Um, but I'm I cupping disagree. my face in my hands like a really cute person for those on the podcast. <laughs> I disagree with your statement that it's morally neutral to love more than one person. Mm. Um, because I think it's actually morally good. Yeah. I think, I think that like, okay, love is a, an emotion, right? It's a set of sensations um, and it's a practice. It's a set of actions. It's both of those things. Um, emotions are always morally neutral. Um, emotions are just things that happen in your nervous system and sometimes they're pleasant and sometimes they're less pleasant. And that's just a, a true thing about being a mammal. I actually don't know if non-mammals have emotions. Wait, they might. Yes, I mean, octopuses, octopuses lizards have emotions. feel love, Perrin? Octopuses have emotions. Okay, great. Oct octopi. Um, um, and octopi trees. However, they just they just found that trees, trees yep. trees also have they they exude uh, in pain and emotional and they can you know communicate in distress. And communicate as well. it through their root systems. So yeah. There we go. We'll, we'll explain. So but, My but emotions. Yes. 
emotions are morally neutral. The set of actions that make up the practice of love are morally good. I agreed. I, I, I feel pretty confident just saying that as a fact, like the set of actions specifically associated with loving more than one person with unsiloing generosity and mutual care and interdependence and having those things be widely spread in a network of kinship rather than all attached to one person, embedding deeply and rooting deeply in community, both local and global, um, and having those broad connections and interdependence and love in a way that is not just laser focused at the one person that you happen to be like currently banging, but is directed at your fellow humans. Yeah. I, how can that do anything but be values aligned? How can that do anything but make a better world? Right. The, 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 the emotion, the emotion of love is morally impactful to the extent that it inspires the practice of love. And the more we do the practice of love and the more people we direct the practice of love at, and the more broadly and generously we give the actions associated with the practice of love, the more beautiful the world's going to be. A hundred percent agreed. And, and we, and where we run into trouble is when we break down love into, uh, into like, you know, brotherly love, uh, neighborly love, romantic love, uh, you know, parent child love somehow that romantic love is the one that that people tend to have the most hang up around and again that messaging that wants to limit that again as though that too also were a finite quality and and i have to i i think it's it's um important to make the distinction that that while love is an infinite resource you know or our bandwidth is not so our energetic bandwidth our emotional bandwidth are not and i think people conflate those two a lot so they're like so i hear he, people would say to me yeah i don't i don't have the energy for more than one person and i'm like i mean look at your life there's more than one person in your life you yes you can you can romantically have the energy and bandwidth and your bandwidth is not infinite so yes you have to take care of yourself like you would any ways um so um well you know what's can i throw in a story here all right Ed, yeah stories in stories are case. stories are allowed um <laughs> what i'm really well thank god because that's what i'm good at is stories um is i'm just realizing i'm not you know, i love these real time where you're like oh my god like that was always there but i didn't you know didn't necessarily have words for it is that in the course of so everything that you just described, Andy, the interdependence, the generosity, the you know the the community, the the belonging, and the caring is in the times in my life when I have been in a, a few long-term um, ethical non-monogamous um, relationships. The it that's what was most alive for me is everything that you described. 
And um, connecting it to what you just said, Ogan, is that having that collective um, just made it easier. Like I didn't, it, I didn't ever have that, oh my God, I don't have the bandwidth for more than one person. Yes. It was the exact opposite. Yes. Um, for me. And uh, I just, um, like I knew when I think back on the relationships, I, I knew, I, I knew in it that it was definitely a, I'm in this and we're all caring for each other and, you know, in different ways and, and um, some nesting and, and some not, but, but that's what was really most alive was that, that we really, the interdependence, like my, my well-being is dependent on yours and, and vice versa. And it was really, I just, as we're talking about it, I'm, I'm just reliving them and really getting how, how much it served and how powerful um, so, so, what, so thank you, Andy. What I'm hearing you saying is that the more people that were involved, the more like energy and bandwidth there was. So like math. Kind of. Yeah. Okay. All right. Ex- cool. Exponential math. Ex- exponential math. There you go. One plus one equals 11, you know, or eight or not two. Yeah. It was, you were, you were judiciously efficient. There you yes, go. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Well, we we yes, came full yes. circle. We came full circle. Um, to, to come wider full circle. Um, so the work that you oh, guys sorry. do. Wait, 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 what? wait, wait. I got to call myself out here. I apologize for the ma'am comment. Okay. Well, you I, you're, it's a they. And ma'am tends to mean, you know, she. So thank you. Um, the, so the the work that you do, these ordinances that were just passed in Somerville, uh, you know, not to, not to necessarily use a capitalistic term, but how do we scale this up? How do we upscale this and spread it to different places? Um, if there are folks who listen in and in their in their you know towns cities they realize oh we should have these here too what what are your suggestions for them to to get this ball rolling reach out to us at polyamorylegal.org we have a contact sheet there and we are actively looking for people who are connected with their municipality governments or are just interested in supporting um, plaques work or are interested in making connections with their municipal governments maybe to pass a um, non-discrimination ordinance or perhaps a relationship recognition ordinance but we're always looking for people so please visit polyamorylegal.org mm-hmm. and sign up both for a newsletter and do our contact sheet please and it's already happening there's a handful yes. of other municipalities that are currently in process um so, uh, so what, you know, our, our focus right now is supporting local activists, you know, yeah. who want to get stuff like this passed in their municipalities. It's because um, it's judicially efficient to do so. There we go. Do you, um, did you, and, and I think we'll begin to wrap up a little bit. Did, did you get any um, pushback? at like that judicial level um, in terms of like, you know, representatives from political parties that we won't necessarily name, um, but w- were there pushbacks? And the reason, the reason I'm asking, cause <clears throat> I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, you know, we're, we're in a time now where there's just a lot of legislation, anti-trans, anti-queer, anti-drag, anti, you know, common sense uh, legislation being, being, pushed through 
really from just uh, you know ostensibly score political points and um, and rile up folk. I I not, you know not to be a negativity here, but I can foresee that should this movement gain traction and more and more municipalities and towns and cities start doing this work, it will draw attention. Um, and it may draw attention that's not always entirely positive. And now all of a sudden this becomes like the new, the new culture war that's being played out on a, on a, on a much wider scale. Are, have you, and are you experiencing any of that? Do you foresee that? And maybe what are your thoughts around that? We have received pushback, rhetorical pushback by right-wing media who are interested in clicks or um, views. So when Somerville became the first municipality to pass relationship recognition, there was a flurry of right-wing media around it. And likewise, when Somerville again became the first municipality to protect um folks in diverse relationships from non, from discrimination. We also experienced a flurry of disinformation and misinformation in the right-wing media. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not to hammer on judicial efficiency, but we are people who are interested in introducing, in, in supporting folks who know that this is something that will support folks in their community that is possible to pass right now. I'm not hearing um oh kelly can you hear me i can i can hear you yeah okay keep, cool keep going. okay i'll continue um so there to take the to, and to go back thirty thousand foot feet foot, <laughs> to go back thirty thousand feet this is going to happen we keep talking about you know there's less than half of families in the united states that are married quote-unquote man and quote-unquote woman with biological children of their own in the household. Um, That's less than half of families in the United States. So the systems are not working for the people who are forced to live within them. And so the systems will eventually break. And how we go about that is not to reiterate others' words, but is at the speed of trust. Um, So we're not looking for fights right now. We're looking for trusting building relationships right now where we can make sure that we are supporting folks on the ground who are doing this work, who will be there long after we leave and who have been there long before we came in. So our job, I think of myself as a tool in very, in many respects that can be used by the folks who are doing the work and supporting the families and are in the families on the ground. Um, So yes, there will be pushback, but there is already pushback there. We are already not um, allowed to access the good, the the rights and responsibilities that we want to access. So, yeah. so yes. I, I just want to add to that, like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing legislatively is very, very geographically um, polarized. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, what we see coming at us is from places that are more conservative where they're looking at us and being like, oh, look at those degenerates doing their degenerate stuff over in those degenerate places, you know, as they are 
doing their legislative agenda and enacting their legislative agenda through you know the the tools that they've been building over decades um like like judicial takeovers and gerrymandering and so all of that's really just like i don't think that there's gonna be a ton of like the legislative field being the battleground because this stuff and that stuff are not happening in the same places right and and it, it's just it just contributes to the to the rift um the geographic rift between the places that are like this and the places that are like that which is widened and widened by rhetoric and widened and widened by um people fleeing states where they have been living or being told to flee states where they have been living but being unable to for one reason or another yeah you know and the 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 important thing as we're thinking about this is that while we are able to pass legislation um that loudly and gloriously supports and celebrates our communities in the places where we are living um we can't imagine that all of our communities live in places like this um and we can't forget about our community members who are living in places that are passing legislation that is crushing them yeah okay i feel like that's a good 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 place to wrap up did you have anything uh else kelly did you want to, to no my uh my heart is full yes um so is so is so is mine um my head's my head's full oh, too i was gonna say this so is, is my this is, this is a, this is a lot of abundance lot of, abundance exactly exactly wholeness full uh full full wholeness um i really want to thank you both for uh taking the time to be with us and more than that for the work that you do um to really create spaces of equity and and what's the, i think one of the most important takeaways from this which is really the crux of justice work is that when when we do work to create spaces of equity for a marginalized group we are, we we are creating it for all people um as as well because you said this is this is not just legislation that's benefiting benefiting um polyamorous folk it it's benefiting anyone that doesn't look like that you know again quote unquote traditional family setup which is most people um and and most of those people themselves are not or may not be polyamorous so um that's it's it's beautiful work you're doing um and thank you even more beyond that for just being yourselves and um being fearless and honestly I don't, uh, you know, it might not be an exaggeration to say being being in harm's way in order to to bring that sense of justice and fairness and and equity to to those who may have felt like they there was no space for them or they didn't even deserve it in in this world. So, um, you know, it's like it's like you're creating you're creating spaces for people to again be who they are. Um, and there's a certain measure of validation um, and and 
elevation of worthiness that that comes with that and um and it's a it's a beautiful thing and in in doing so you know Andy, you said earlier that you know legislative and legal working isn't sexy but you know when 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 it's framed in this context it it is aaron's like and and as not on the head. Yeah, it's, oh, it's sexy. Oh, I know. I think it's super sexy. I love legislative work. I'm also a regulatory wonk, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> there's, there's 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 a hey, everyone's got their own kink. It's all good. Um, so again, thank you very much. And um, I actually wouldn't mind giving you guys like sort of like the last word. So if there's any put you on the spot, if there's any like just quick like you know snippet of of a takeaway or something you want our listeners to really remember hold on to you know hold in their heart space you know what what would it be i'm going to let andy go last so i'm going to say that abundance is the antidote to capitalism so find that space in your life that is abundant that is gloriously abundant that is that is um opulent and elegant and uh, sexy and seductive to yourself and and dive into it and swim around in your abundance like Scrooge McDuck in his <laughs> in his big pool of coins. Love it. Love it. McDuck. I could not agree more. If I would give one one little piece of advice, it's that there's a lot of really awful stuff that's balanced on top of what we are forcing ourselves to tolerate by letting ourselves be separated from our bodies. And if we all just decided to tolerate all of that stuff a little less, to be a little bit more present with that suffering, um, to run away from the pain of it a little bit less, I think it would make a big difference. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mic drop, mic drop. Uh, So... Uh, thank you, Heron. Thank you, Andy. Uh, folks, please visit polyamorylegal.org to learn more about the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition and how you can support their work and bring their work uh, to where you might be. Visit projectsanctus.com to support our work, as Kelly and I. And um, as always, we appreciate your, your donations as well. Always remember to tell your friends about this podcast. You can find it on all podcast platforms. And if you still have that one friend that doesn't know what a podcast is, you can listen to us on the old school interwebs at withloveandjusticeforall.podbean.com. So go bring some more love into the world. And until we meet again, let's get our holy on. Mm-hmm.